Uh, we're going to be in Psalm 38 this morning, and uh, I want us to, this is, uh, this, so this is in between, it's not really long, but it's not really short, so I think what I'll do is I will read uh, part of it, and then you can read along with me for part of it. So here's, here's what we will what we'll, uh, do. You can read verses 1 through 3 with me, and then maybe I'll pick up the pace and read uh, verses 4 through 14, and then we'll pick up and read uh, 15 through 22 all together again. Got it? So me and you will be doing 1 through 3, then I'll be doing 4 through 14, and then me and you will be doing, you and I will be doing uh, 15 through 22. All right? You ready? O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate. All the day long I go about mourning. For my sides are filled with burning. There is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs. My strength fails me. In the light of my eyes, it is also gone from me. My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague, and my nearest kin stand far off. Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. But I am like a deaf man. I do not hear, like a mute man who does not open his mouth. I have become like a man who does not hear and whose mouth are no rebukes. Everyone now, but for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord my God, who will answer. For I said, only let rejoice over me who boast against me when my foot slips. For I am ready to fall and my pain is ever before me. I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. But my foes are vigorous. They are mighty and many are those who hate me wrongfully. Those who render me evil for good accuse me because I follow after good. Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. God, be gracious to us as we hear from your word today. Change our hearts and change our lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Have you all seen the memes? I bet I'm certain you have. Uh, they say something, that say something like, some of y'all haven't fill in the blank, and it shows. Have you all seen those? I saw one the other day that said, some of y'all haven't heard the sound of a leather belt sliding through the loops of your dad's Wrangler jeans, and it shows. <laughs> <laughs> and some of y'all might not know what that reference is even. And trust me. It definitely shows. <laughs> and there might be a sermon there, but, but we'll save that uh, sermon for later. 
But some of us, we know exactly what that means, don't we? We are all too familiar with that sound because we have been chastened <laughs> by our parents. Uh, and that's a soft word uh, for a euphemism for what some of us got. Um, but, but, right, for those of us who had good parents, who had... Uh, non-abusive parents that uh, believed in uh, discipline in that way. Uh, the idea wasn't to beat us down. It was for us to feel the negative consequences of our negative actions. And it had in mind, not just that we would feel negative consequences for negative actions, but it had in mind to train us to do the right thing. Right? There was, there was uh, uh, some intent behind it. And we know that God is a faithful and good father to his children, chastens us for a similar purpose. He wants us to feel not the negative consequences of our negative actions, but he wants us to feel the sinful consequences of our sinful actions. And God does this in, in various ways. Uh, you know, sometimes with dad we got the belt, and sometimes with mom we got the flip-flop. But uh, God, God disciplines us in, in various ways. And several of the ways that God disciplines His children are described in the psalm that we just read. God allows us to sense His displeasure and distance from His presence. He allows our minds to be tormented and our bodies to become weak. He allows friends to forsake us and enemies to seem to gain the upper hand against us. And all of this is for the sake of making us know something of the sinfulness of our sin. To make us what I'm going to call today for this sermon, sin sick. But when a person suffers the chastening hand of God, when they sense this sin sickness, they aren't without hope. There is only one hope, but there is hope. Their only hope is turning to God. And that is actually what the chastening or the sin sickness is all about in the first place. So there is hope for the sin sick. And we see this ring true in Psalm 38. And I, I want us to move through this psalm to discover the hope for the sin sickness. First, we see that David, at the onset, is chastened from above. David is chastened from above. You notice that as we read, David says, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath, for your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. This is telling us that this agonizing dilemma that David is going to describe is actually from God. This this comes from God. David knows this. He knows it is the consequence of his own sin. And he poetically describes this chastening of the Lord as the Lord shooting arrows at him. And we know that if God shoots arrows, he doesn't miss, right? He hits the target that he's aiming at. And that's what he's done with David. He has found his target. And 
David says, they have sunk down into me. So we would say that God shoots with accuracy and he also shoots with strength, that the arrows don't just deflect, but they sink deep into the flesh and into the soul. And then David also describes the chastening of the Lord as the Lord's hand pressing down on him. So David is feeling the heavy hand of God's displeasure against sin, and namely, not just sin in general, but the psalmist's own sin. And I think that all the other distresses that David describes in the 38th Psalm have their ultimate beginning here. That what he senses, what he feels, his sin sickness, his friend forsakenness, his enemies taking advantage of him are actually the result of God's displeasure or his hand being pressed down on the psalmist. And when David feels this, this causes him to plead with the Lord, not to rebuke him in anger or discipline him in wrath. And I think the key words here are in your anger and in your wrath. The psalmist is obviously not praying for God to not rebuke him or to discipline him. He's obviously being rebuked and disciplined by the Lord. He admits that. And so the prayer is not that he wouldn't be rebuked or chastened, but the prayer is that he would not be rebuked and chastened in God's anger and in God's wrath. He is saying, Lord, do not let your anger and your wrath be kindled against me because that would destroy me. And then we go on to hear of the horrors of David's sin sickness. But even at the onset, we catch a glimmer of hope in the prayer of David. He has a real hope, otherwise he would not pray. He has a real hope that although the rebuke of the Lord is all but unbearable, the Lord will not utterly destroy David in his anger or in his wrath. He must bear rebuke but it will not be the full wrath of God that is poured out on David. So we see that David is chastened from above, and this makes David what I'm calling sin sick from within. He finds this sin sickness in his, in his person. And I'm, and I'm using that word sin sickness because I, I think that the way that uh, the sickness that David is describing may be a poetic way to describe his own sin and separation that he is feeling in his inner being, and he describes it in terms of a real physical ailment. And I, I will grant that it could be a real physical ailment. But verses 3 through 5 would seem to indicate that the emphasis of his ailment is on the sin he has committed as opposed to the sickness that he feels. David says there is no soundness because of God's indignation and his own sin. Soundness is another word for health. He says, I'm not healthy, not because I have a heart condition or not because I have uh, uh, some kind of physical ailment, but I am not healthy because of God's indignation and my own sin. He says his iniquities are over his head. They are too heavy for him. 
He says those wounds, very likely the wounds caused by the arrows of the Lord, are infected because of His foolishness. So there seems to be an immediate link between what David is feeling and the sin he is mourning. Whether or not it is a real physical ailment, I can't say for certain. But what I do know is that David is sin sick. That the root of his ailment is sin. He is feeling in his body or in his person, maybe even in his soul, the effects of sin and separation from God. David continues to describe this sin sickness. He says his sides are burning. Check out what it says in the King James Version. He feels weak and crushed, and his heart is throbbing or panting. Even the light of uh, life in his eyes have gone. He has a void in his eyes. He stares off into the far-off distance. He is feeling the despair of his sin, and it has taken away the joy and the strength of life. In verse 8, he even says that he groans because of the tumult. Is that tumult? Tumult? Tumult. He groans because of the tumult of his heart. And again, looking back at the King James Version, it translates that word that appears groans as roars. And this Hebrew word that appears as groans or as roars in the King James Version has an animalistic nature to it. And it's used to describe several times in Scripture a lion, a lion rather, roaring in the Old Testament. And I think, beloved, that that is something that all of us who have served the Lord for any amount of time can identify with. Our sin has created tumult in our heart and sickness in our bodies. The light of life in our eyes has gone dim and we find ourselves just staring off into the distance for a moment of relief. Even in conversation, we look beyond the heads of those that are talking to us just so that we could get a moment of of mental silence. We, we roar out like an agitated animal when we are lo- alone. Or sometimes we are not alone, but we feel like roaring out like an agitated animal when we're around others. And we don't know whether it's anger or frustration or shame. Have any of you been there? When you've ridden down the road, don't vote out loud. But I'll just take the brunt of this one. But you're so frustrated and so angry and so tormented inside that while you're alone, you just oh, roar out like an, like an animal. You're, you're so frustrated or so ashamed. But why have we not perished? Why do we remain? Why don't we walk away? Even though the deep, even through rather the deep anguish and through the frustration, we remain as David did. And I think that we capture another glimpse for the reason that David remains. And then ultimately for the reason we remain in verse 9. O Lord, all my longing is before you. 
my sighing is not hidden from you. We know as David knew that our longing is before the Lord and that our deep soul sighing is known by God. And I want to, and I want to point out that of course it's known by God because God has orchestrated it. Again, even in the midst of this great distress of body and soul, David offers a glimmer of hope that God knows his longing and hears his sighs. But David's David's not finished describing his sorrows. For not only does he feel the sickness of his soul and the displeasure of the Lord, he also experiences woes from his enemies and even worse, his friends. So we see that David is forsaken from without. Verses 11 through 14 describe that. Describe that his friends have forsaken him and that his enemies seek to take advantage of his weakness. Be it physical weakness or spiritual weakness. In verse 11, he begins with his friends. David says, My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague, and my nearest kin stand afar off. His closest friends and his closest family members won't even come near him. It's not that they have ceased to be David's friends. It's that they won't do anything to help him. So maybe they're still calling themselves his friends. And of course, family, you're just kind of stuck with them, aren't you? If there is a a real physical ailment here, they are sickened by the intensity of the disease. If it's only a sin sickness... I think it's still the intensity that, that keeps them away. He is, I mean, and we've been there and we've been around folks like this. He is roaring. He stands off, or rather he stares off into the distance. And the ones who may very well offer him some consolation, they don't do so because they don't know what to say. It's kind of like Job's friends when they come and see his plight and they just sit there for days on end in silence. Stunned. I, 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 don't, I, don't know what to, I don't know what to say. Or they know whatever they do try to say will offer very little comfort, if any comfort at all. It's too much for them to deal with, and so they stand aloof, the ESV says. They, they don't come around. They, they're, back, they're backing off from the psalmist. And I think that this is a deep hardship. This is a pain in the heart that is difficult to bear when those who should care for you either will not or do not. And David feels the full weight of that hardship as he bears the consequences of his sin. This is, this is not an application, this is an implication. I didn't add it to my notes uh, because it's not directly an application. But I think that we can hear the implication of this. Don't be a friend like that, right? If, if your friend or your loved one is experiencing this deep soul anguish, be with them, try to help them. Don't stand aloof, right? 
wade off into it and at least try to offer some consolation and help and hope. But I digress. So not only does David feel the forsakenness of his friends, but, but his enemies are, are using his frailty to take advantage of him. He has no peace. David has no peace with God. He has no peace within himself. He has no respite from his enemies. The only folks that he does have peace with, his friends and family members, they don't come around. And his enemies are ruthless. They know how to kick a man while he's down. They desire to ensnare him. They don't back off and say, okay, we'll give him a fair fight when he heals up. No, they're ready to kick him while he's down. They want to do him harm. They want to overthrow him. They want to ruin him and utterly destroy him. And David has no defense. Look what he says in verse 13 and 14. I am like a deaf man. I do not hear, like a mute man who does not open his mouth. I have become like a man who does not hear and in whose mouth there are no rebukes. I can't, I can't offer an argument against them. I've become deaf and dumb. I can't defend myself with my words. With Job, again, his friends accused him of sinning, and, and Job is like, I'm, listen, fellas, I'm quite sure I haven't. I, I don't want to sound pious here, but I don't think that that's what's going on here. But if David's friends offers that rebuke, David can't say anything. He, he has no rebuke. He has no defense. He can't do anything to help himself. And obviously no one else is doing anything to help him either. And I want, I, I want with the psalmist for us to get the sense of the wretched condition that sin leaves the human in. And as I've mentioned before, I say again that if you are a believer and have been for any amount of time, you will have to admit that although not to the degree that is described here, that you have felt something similar to what David describes in this psalm, to what David is experiencing here. And I would say that it's very possible that you are a believer here today and you are experiencing, even now, some sense of this sin sickness. You also may be hearing this here today and, and be an unbeliever. You may begin to feel the crushing weight of your sin and begin to sense that sin sickness that David has described so far. But can I tell you that there is hope? The hope for the believer and the unbeliever that is sin sick today is the same hope that David had in his dilemma. And the hope is God. Yes, the very God who has orchestrated the sin sickness, who has allowed the friend forsakenness and all the hardship described in the psalm. Look at verse 15. But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer. All of what David has described, the arrows, the heavy hand of God, the weakness and torment of his body, the utter despair of his soul, his friends and family turning their backs on him, his enemies 
using his weakness to conspire against him and so on. But verse 15 begins with a but or a however or an in spite of all of this. David says he will wait on the Lord. He is certain God will come to his aid. And here, this is, a, this is paradoxical because the Lord is chastening David for his own sin. A fact that David has ad- admitted in this very psalm. However, David is hopeful in the midst of this terrible chastening. What causes such a hope? Or maybe a more pertinent question would be, how can a man who is being punished so sorely by God run to God in the midst of his chastening? And the answer is that David knows the character of God. David knows that as sure as God is displeased with his sin and that God will not in His holiness tolerate it, that God is merciful. And He does not intend the chastening for David's destruction, but God intends the chastening for David's good and even God's own glory. And we see that revealed in David's prayer as the psalm continues. Verses 16, 19, and 19 through 20, rather, God, I'm sorry, David knows that God will deal with his enemies. Look at it. He says, I'll hope in the Lord, for I said, only let them not rejoice against me who boast against me when my foot slips. But my foes are vigorous, they are mighty, and many are those who hate me wrongfully. Those who render me evil for good accuse me because I follow after good. This may seem like a selfish prayer. But in in David's context, this prayer is more about the reputation of God than it is about the reputation of David. David's already admitted, I'm a sinner. I am bearing this because of my sin. But David knows that God will not ultimately let him fall even though he admits his foot has slipped. God will not allow the downfall of one of his true children. David knows this. He knew it about God with absolute certainty. Verses 19 and 20 give us a hint as to why David knows this. It reveals that the enemies of David are not David's enemy because of David's wrongdoing. They render him evil and speak evil against David, particularly because he follows after righteousness. So the enemy of David is the enemy of truth, the enemy of justice, the enemy of righteousness. And that's why David can be confident that God will deal with, with his enemies. The enemy of David is the enemy of righteousness and therefore ultimately the enemy of God. So they're enemies against me and they seek to do me hurt, but it's because I do what is good. And so God, ultimately, they're your enemies. 
And David knows that God is jealous for his own glory and will not allow David to fall or will not allow the wicked to triumph. David can hope in God because David knows, as verse 17 and 18 says, that God's chastening has accomplished its task. David says, For I am ready to fall, and my pain is ever before me. I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. As a matter of fact, this psalm is one of seven penitential psalms. So the whole point of this psalm is penitence. It is David crying out in repentance. God's chastening has accomplished the task that it set out for. David said he is ready to fall, but he has not yet fallen. His pain is ever before him. And I think that we can even get the sense that it is at the forefront of all of his thoughts and all of his actions. But we see what the pain and the torment and the sin sickness causes David to do. It causes him to be sorry for his sin. It causes him to confess his iniquity. God's chastening has accomplished its task. The sin sickness and loneliness has led David to confession and repentance. And although David writhes in the chastening of the Lord, he does not wallow in his iniquity. And that's a key distinctive there. There are times when we are writhing because we feel the sin sickness of, or the consequences of our own sin. But we ought not wallow in that iniquity. When we sense the heavy hand of the Lord, we don't stay there. Our hearts are turned back to God and this is what has happened with David. The oppressing hand of the Lord has turned David's heart back to God. And this, this is the ultimate hope in every chastening act of God. God does not discipline to destroy. He disciplines to restore. And that is a steadfast hope when we are sin sick. And David has hope in God because David knows God is with him and that God is his salvation. David says in verse 21 and 22, Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. So I think the closing verses, the two closing verses of Psalm 38 are like the two opening ones, which probably means that there's some clever structure there that I'm not smart enough to figure out. And it's too late for that now, so I probably shouldn't even have mentioned it. But, but they are. The, the, opening line, the opening lines of the psalm are like the closing lines of the psalm. We see David praying what he already knows to be true. David in Psalm 1 and 2 says, Don't rebuke me in your anger. Don't discipline me in your wrath. And he can pray that with, a, with assurance because he knows that, that's not, that God is going to rebuke him and discipline him, but not in his wrath and in his anger. And so in the closing verses, he is saying, don't forsake me, Lord, because he knows the Lord has not forsaken him. He says, don't be far from me because he knows the Lord is not 
far from him. He says, make haste to help me and be my salvation because he knows that is precisely what God will do. God has not forsaken David. Indeed, we have seen, and I've tried to emphasize it, that it has been God all along the line that has orchestrated all of these troubles to the salvation of David's soul. It didn't feel like help, right? All the woes that David described in this psalm, though, were helping him. They were helping him turn from his sin and to turn from God. Or I'm sorry, turn from his sin and turn to God. Don't do it like I said it the first time. This is the, this is the true hope in our sin sickness. That when we feel that heavy hand of God in our lives, that it is designed to turn our hearts towards God and by consequence from sin. And so the way that this psalm instructs us initially, I think is blatant. It's obvious. That most pressing lesson teaches us that we ought to run to God when we are sin sick. Right? We, and we need to be instructed thus because that is not our natural reaction. When we sin and we begin to feel the shame and the weight of that, what do we do? We attempt with futility, and we know it's futile, to sweep it under the rug, to try to act like we'd never sinned, to try to pretend like the reason that we are in the shape that we are in has nothing to do with our own sin. And what anguish we would avoid if we would just run to God immediately when we sin. Right? Understanding the character of God like David did. When we sin, we just immediately... God knows already. And so we just run to God and even embrace the chastening that, that may come from it. Think of it this way. David ran to God when he felt the arrows of God stick deep in him. He turned towards the God whose hand had pressed down heavily upon him. But for us, for the believers on this side of the cross, we have seen that Christ has borne the arrows of God's wrath for our sin. It is Christ who has come under the handy, the heavy hand of God against sin. It is Christ who has endured anguish of body and soul at the hand of the Almighty. And not for His own sin, but for our sin. David prayed that the anger and wrath of God would be stayed from him, and it was. But not so with Christ. God poured out His just wrath against sinners on Christ who knew no sin. How much more than and sooner than David should we turn from sin and run to Christ who was born the punishment for it on the cross. I don't want to miss this moment to say to my unbelieving friends here today 
that Christ is also your only hope of salvation? Are you feeling sin sick? Has your sin and wickedness overwhelmed you? Has it rotted in your bones and left you abandoned and despairing? Can I ask you why you didn't feel like that a year ago? Why now? Are you feeling the rottenness of sin within yourself? I would say that most all believers would say that it stands to reason that the Spirit is at work in your life. You feel abandoned, despairing. Turn to Christ who has borne God's wrath against sinners on the cross. And I can assure you that if you come repenting of your sins and trusting in Him alone for salvation, He will not cast you aside. He will save you. And He will save you completely. He will heal you. Even of those stinking, uh, infected wounds... He will restore you from your sin-sick state. Turn to Christ. The psalmist also instructs us not only to turn to Christ, but to hope in God. We as God's children are, are often chastened by the Lord, right? But... But we do not despair. It's, it's strange that a lot of times when we are chastened by the Lord, our mind goes to, I've done, I'm not a child of God. Right? We, we begin to struggle with assurance. We think, okay, I'm not, what's happened here? Uh, I've been separated. I'm no longer a child of God. But Scripture teaches the exact opposite of that. Scripture teaches that if you are being chastened by God, it is because you are a son or a child of God. You know where it teaches that? It teaches it in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 3 through 13. I'll read it to you. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted yet, or you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good that we may share His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. 
and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. So we don't despair in God's chastening, but we endure the discipline of the Lord, knowing it is bringing about the fruit of righteousness in our lives. A real hope of real holiness. A real hope of being conformed into the image of Christ. That's a real hope in our sin sickness. So when we are being chastened by God, hope in God. And there are some, a few practical ways that I think are things that hoping in God looks like. And they're simple. Maybe, maybe even self-evident. You may say, well, how do I hope in God? Well, at least a few ways are not wasting your time trying to cover up your sin. Instead, confess it to God. And any other person immediate, uh, and, and any other person immediately, and then immediately begin to reconcile the relationships that were broken because of your sin. Right? I, it, just uh, learning the ropes here, uh, and hanging out with Dale some as he goes through some uh, member stuff, and if and and then even in small groups the last few weeks, if I've heard it once, I've heard it fifteen times. Confession and repentance. It's something that is emphasized, apparently has been emphasized for a long time at Church on the Way. And that's appropriate. Stop wasting time cover, trying to cover sin. You're not covering it anyway. Confess it. Right? Get it right between you and your neighbor. Get it right between you and God. Tracking your sin sickness back to its source and repenting of that sin. Or those sins... And taking steps to overcome that sin, right? Confession and repentance. And then some things that we can do proactively are just really participating in the ordinary means of grace. And we have heard that the last couple of weeks. Establishing routines of grace in your life. Participating in those ordinary means of grace, as we say. Regular attendance to Lord's Day worship. If you can be here... Be here. Come to small group. Regularly attend small group. Regular prayer and Bible reading. I know that I don't want to oversimplify this, but these things establish routines of grace in your life that are, that are sanctifying works in your life and give you strength not to fall into every sin that comes along. And then when you do fall into sin, your heart has been trained to turn to God. Because your face is before Him. Participating in the Lord's Supper, right? Oftentimes we draw back because we feel like we have sinned that week or something. But that's not the, the point of the Lord's Supper. is not for, not for you to be condemned over whether or not you have, or, uh, you have sinned that week. The, the, uh, the point of the Lord's Supper is to remind us that His body was broken for us. That His blood was shed for us. That this is an ordinary means of grace in our lives as we participate in just catching a small glimpse of the feast that we will have together as we taste the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. And these are just naming a few. But, but they are for the, the purpose of establishing these routines of grace that will train us to turn from our sin. 
and to hope in God when we sense that slightest onset of sin sickness, right? When we start getting the old runny nose, we go to the store and buy the, uh, the that vitamin, what is it called? The vitamin C packet that you put, emergency. Yes, thank you. I'm getting a lot of help from the audience today. Thank you. You know, as soon as we get that, we probably should have been doing that before. We go get some tissues and some cough drops and things like that because we're like, uh-oh, here it comes. Well, so it is with, I mean, similarly, when we feel the onset of sin sickness, start taking steps to turn to God, to hope in God, and take it from someone who has spent more time than I care to admit in David's dilemma in Psalm 38, I can tell you that it would be much better if we would just turn from our sins and turn to God. Because He really is our only hope. Amen? God, You are our hope. Help us to remember it, Lord. Train our hearts. Teach us the way. Lord, as we participate in the ordinary means of grace, as we establish routines of grace in our lives that train us to turn to You, to turn from our sin, teach us more. Teach us better. Help us, God, I pray. Lord, as we go throughout this week, there may be folks that are sensing this sin sickness. And I pray that You would allow them, cause them to turn to you and to hope in you and ultimately be healed of their sin sickness. For the unbeliever, Lord, who is wrestling with sin, for the last little while they have felt the weight of sin in a way that they had not sensed in their life before. God, grant them repentance. Grant them faith, Lord. We know that you will turn their hearts to you so that they may have that steadfast hope that we find in you. And we pray it in Christ's name.